This is Media Business Matters, the podcast that explores why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Itner. This week, we're actually going to catch up on some news from the past few weeks and actually say why it matters. You know, like our little intro says, um, there, there isn't going to be too many deep dives. We're going to kind of go topic by topic and bounce through this a bit quickly, as I think both Amanda and my brains are kind of fried right now. There has been quite a bit of news, though, coming out, um, even just in, in the last week or so, in some ways picking up on stories that we've talked about throughout the last few months, and uh, in other ways, new news. So I think the goal that I have for today is to, to to, as you said, get to why this information matters, because there's certainly been a lot of discussion about these developments, but but they all have their implications in their own ways. So should we start with Horace and Pete? Yeah, let's start with Horace and Pete. Louis C.K. Uh, earlier this year dropped the, out of the blue, dropped the first episode of a show called Horace and Pete, selling it on his website for... I want to say $5? The pilot, or the first episode was $5, the second was 2 and every episode after that was 3 or you could buy all of them for 31 by the time all, you got to the end. Although he didn't make that option available until after the entire show was done. Let, let's get talk about this. So Amanda, why does this kind of random release that he, he self-produced the entire show and he self-distributed the entire show, why does this matter? Well, in many ways, there's, there's a lot, right? So... We can talk about the strategies of what he did second, but let's let's start with what has happened. And so that is this idea of a creative individual self-producing and self-distributing a professional 10-episode, hour-long, quality comedy drama. And so that's something I don't think anyone really expected to see, and, and certainly the fact that it hadn't been pre-promoted in any way uh, caught even more people by surprise. Although CK does have a tendency to release his comedy specials that way, like he, I believe the past three or four specials he has dropped on his website and sells them for five bucks, and you can, essentially you get a video of the special without any DRM or any kind of encoding. Right, so CK's really been a pioneer in many ways of, of experimenting with direct distribution, doing it on his own. But I think there's a big difference between a comedy special and self-producing a television series. A 10-episode television yeah, show. That's, that, that's not a small accomplishment. And so I, I think a lot of the headlines that we've seen most recently have been sort of some of the, the challenges of it, why perhaps we haven't seen more of it. But I, I think that, that this is an important experiment, and, it, and it's, it's still an important experiment that's been largely successful, I would say, given the critical reaction to the series was was uniformly positive. Uh, and so it, it wasn't a case where this first experiment suggests that this can't work. No, it, there's definitely a hint that it can, but really the story that kind of came out of this after the last episode, Louis C.K., he was giving an interview and he said, I fell into debt. I fell millions in debt. I had to take out a line of credit because what he wanted to do was he wanted to use the first four episodes the money from the first four episodes to fund the rest of the series. Right, and I think there's still a possibility that that, that could be done, but it, also in other interviews, CK talked about really wanting to create a very specific experience, and part of that ex specific experience was that he wanted people to be surprised. Uh, and so there was no pre-promotion. There was no discussion. There, there, the initial... He just kind of emailed his email list and said, hey, I made a thing, please buy it. 
Exactly. And then there was no discussion of how long it was going to be. Would there be more? When he dropped the finale, he didn't even acknowledge it was the finale until well after. You just, uh, according to Alan Seppenwall, you just, I haven't watched it yet. I want to. Uh, He just, you just kind of knew it was the end by watching it. Going back to sort of this discussion of of strategy and execution, I think this strategy could work, uh, but it's probably a strategy that requires more pre-promotion if the expectation is that it is going to earn revenue in real time. Now, it, it, it also might be that it's not realistic for a production to earn money in real time. My suspicion is that CK will have made back the money he spent on it by the end of the summer. I mean, the reality maybe, or is... I, I would say maybe a little bit longer until after the Emmys come in. Because th- this show, I, I've been hearing that it, it's going to play well. Louis CK is an Emmy favorite. Louis has done very well with the Emmys. So I feel like that's a platform that really could propel the show. Well, this is all entirely unknown territory, right? Right. Because we really don't know if television watchers behave at all in the same way as film viewers. Because we we, we know that there is a phenomenon of people going to see films once they're nominated for Oscars. But we haven't really had television as readily accessible. Um, And certainly... Or it's sold in this model. Usually shows with Emmys... There's some kind of connection. It's packaged with something, either your cable, your broadcast, or some kind of streaming. We've never really had anything kind of on its own like this. Right. So I think that it comes back to, if we're going to talk about why this matters, well, it it matters that a talent, um, admittedly someone who had a couple million and could uh, get a couple more million in, in loans, has a opportunity in today's distribution environment to make and distribute a series without any network notes or without any interference. And, and that's, that's not something that has been characteristic of television before. And it's really much more a model of independent filmmaking. Right. And I, I think we haven't seen this. You know, I was reading articles by Miles McNutt and Joe Adalian, and they kind of made the same point. Television has been deficit financed since the beginning. Um, Should we we talk about what deficit financing means, Alex? Sure. Deficit financing uh, is when a studio, a production company, goes into debt on a show in the beginning. So let's say Warner Brothers producing The Big Bang Theory, CBS will pay below the full production cost. Roughly 70%. Right. And the idea is that Warner Brothers will then make back the money after several years once the show goes into syndication, which with The Big Bang Theory, it did. And so, admittedly, sort of this experiment is is not like that in any way because we've never had television sold on a transaction basis like this. Like, yes, you've been able to buy things from iTunes after they they were created for something else and existed somewhere else. So, so that bit of this is entirely new. I think it's also widely expected that CK will sell the distribution rights to someone. Is it? I, I haven't been hearing that. I, I've seen that in a couple places. And so so maybe it is. You know, a year from now, you can wait and get it on Netflix. I think given his model, it makes sense that he doesn't want to circulate that expectation too widely. Otherwise, people might just, you know, wait. Right. Um, he, he wants to make back his money. Sure. Uh, which which makes good sense. And, and again, it's we're talking about a professional production. Uh, CK said that each episode cost about... Five hundred thousand dollars, which, which is no slouch for a TV show. I think that's about. I think that's about more expensive than what I've heard Louis be quoted as. 
Well, I think there it's a half hour versus an hour, right. and so I think to keep that in mind. I mean, there there's a lot that I I still have a lot of questions about. I mean, certainly he was able to get top top tier talent due largely to his relationships. It's not clear whether they were working at scale. It wasn't clear whether it was a union production. Uh, CK did so much himself from writing, directing. Um, he, he did not edit this, but he also acted in it. I mean, so I mean, uh, he used an editor who he was familiar with from Louis. Right. So, so all of these things. So it's interesting to think that this quality can be created on half a million when an hour long network show is typically in the $4 million range. So this is a small amount, uh, relatively. But again, I think to me, what I even hadn't expected was to see a creative going it alone to this degree this early. And at this point, you know, I've been thinking a lot about just studios finding ways to go it alone by distributing their content themselves. Um, but but this is this is an interesting shot over the bow, I think, to of what might be to come. Yeah, it's a new avenue. I mean, if we if we see what Louis C.K.'s comedy specials have led to, other comedians have followed his track. Aziz, I'm sorry, probably one of the most notable ones. Does this mean we'll see it for TV? I don't know. Uh, it's such a more complex thing. Right. It's clear that not everyone can do this. Right. So part of this was Louis C.K.'s reputation, but I also think that there's a really important part of the way that he executed this particular experiment, um, which was that he had built up this relationship with his fans who had purchased his previous specials, and he cultivated this, uh, I think, image of a creator who was just trying to get back a fair amount for the work that they put into a creative project. And so I think that the degree to which he's been open and acknowledged that, that quality entertainment costs money. Uh, and, you know, that it's not just a studio, anonymous studio that you're you're harming when you choose to pirate. And so I think CK managed to put the, the onus in some ways on, on the audience member. I think, you know, if well, you on, choose on, to torrent this, you're, you're not a good person. On the site, Louis CK says, like, please don't torrent this. Like, if you torrent this, you're a word I can't say on this podcast. Right. And so I think, you know, we have had these moments in, in television's transition to digital distribution that that have just sort of caught my eye as important turning points. I think one of the biggest ones was when iTunes back in 2006 began distributing an episode of television or selling an episode of television and at that point priced it at $1.99. An episode of television had never been priced before. And so again, I think what is what is significant and why this experiment matters is that it established a base. It established five dollars for the first episode. For or- the first episode, and to see to see something you know nothing about, you know, as opposed to you know, when the thought experiment of this kind of thing has been tossed around, everyone sort of well, how do we promote it? You know, how do you let people sample it first? And so, it, to many minds, the model would be well, give them the first episode free, and then make them pay for the In subsequent. In fact, iTunes ones. will still often have free pilots for a show when they premiere, and then they'll price the future episodes at a dollar ninety nine, but they'll make the pilot free. Although that's probably, that, that's not just iTunes doing that. The that, studio's, studios letting it happen, yeah. right. Yeah. And so I think I think all the pieces of this were really important. You know, sort of acculturating a fan base that respects and appreciates what this creative has to offer. Establishing what is a reasonable and fair price for the entertainment that they were offering. And there were really interesting uh, conversations that I, I saw you know, about the comparison of, 
well, why would I pay $5 for an hour of, of television when my whole Netflix subscription costs, you know, $9 a month? And, and, and I think that's, that's exactly the wrong question. Um, but it, it really gets into the ways in which the new models for paying for television are starting to create some interesting conversations. They certainly are. And speaking of new models to pay for television, we've had some price changes at some of our favorites like Netflix and Amazon. Amazon, who traditionally has sold Prime at a year subscription, uh, you pay for a year, added a monthly plan. So if you want Amazon Prime, it's $10.99 a month or $100 for the year. But the really interesting that they did was they added a Prime video plan at $8.99 per month, or $2 cheaper than the full service, which includes shipping, music, photos, and everything else. Um, so Amanda, let, let's put this into context. Why does this matter? This is my story of the week that doesn't matter. This is, this is a non-news story as far as I can see. There's been quite a bit of hype in the last week about how this is some sort of great challenge now to Netflix, um, but I really don't think that's what this is about at all. And I think, first of all, it's important to keep in mind that Amazon is a, is a company that is in a lot of different businesses, and creating entertainment content is but one small one. It, it's probably a it, one of the tiniest chunks of the company as a whole. Absolutely. And so, to my mind, all this is doing is it's probably trying to reach those consumers for whom an entire year subscription just seemed too much. Um, or that, that, that the, the value that comes from that. For me, it's a significant value entirely unrelated to the programming. You know, I, I order many household goods on a regular basis from Amazon. And so the Prime shipping, that's that's why I have Prime. Uh, but there are and many as homes- as a student, I get half off, so. Oh, I didn't even know that. Ah, uh, should be a student. So I think that, I suspect that their research suggests to them that there are several households, or several, maybe two million households that are interested in the video service, but for whom the shipping value just isn't part of what they want to buy. And I think this is targeted toward them. And, and to Amazon's benefit, why not have that $2 million? It's not really costing them all that much to... to it do. doesn't hurt their bottom line no. at all. No. I, 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 Especially because if you end up subscribing for a full year, it's more than the $100 that you would pay otherwise. Now, the way in which I think this is something to watch and um, you know, this is true of, of Netflix, CISO, all the portals, is I suspect that there's going to be, you know, as all these different portals come to market, that we assume that people subscribe and they stay subscribed. Because that was the nature of, of cable, you know, and broadcast before, you know, you're a subscriber and it's ongoing and continuous. But I think as a multiplicity of services come to market, that more and more consumers will, you know, reach that point where they recognize that, you know, it's not cost effective to have all of them. You can't watch all of them. And so that flexibility of having a monthly subscription makes it easier for, let's say, a consumer to come in and say, I'm curious about what's on Amazon Prime video. I'm going to subscribe for these two months. I'm going to burn my way through everything I want to see, and then I'm going to cancel my subscription. Or maybe, hey, I like Transparent. The new season of Transparent is coming. I'm going to subscribe. I'm going to watch. I'm going to cancel. Because I know... There isn't a notable chunk with that with HBO, but I know because anecdotal evidence is the best evidence. My household did that with Game of Thrones for a while. 
No, it's, it's the concept of churn. And so HBO is a good example because as a legacy subscription service, you know, that's, that's what HBO's model has always been all about, trying to reduce churn and add new subscribers. And so, so I am curious, as this portal subscription-based market becomes more mature, whether we do see companies trying to turn off that flexibility or definitely steering their pricing structure so that it's much more expensive to subscribe for a short period of time than a long one. Um, but again, you know, I think the, the fact that there is increasing competition suggests that those who, who price themselves you know, too high, you know, there's, there's plenty of other television to watch on other services. I, I mean, we're, we're not in the age of peak TV for nothing. But ne Amazon wasn't the only one making changes to their prices. Netflix did as well. So they increased their general price from $8.99 to $9.99 for all subscribers. And why that all subscribers part is a notable part of the story is they had grandfathered in old subscribers at a lower price. And now they're kind of, they said, all right, we're no longer grandfathering you. You're paying more deal with it. So Amanda, why, why, why are we talking about this? Well, I think this is a, a development that, that needed to happen. And, and to go back to that earlier conversation about, you know, paying so much for one episode when my Netflix subscription was so low. I think, frankly, by a number of measures, one could argue that, that Netflix is, is relatively underpriced. And, and, and let me explain what I mean by that. And some research that's come out in the, the last year has found that on average, uh, a household streams two hours of Netflix a day. And so if you, you do the math on that, even if you go to the new subscription point of, of $10 a month, if you're, if you're streaming two hours a day, that comes out to 17 cents an hour. Now, that, that's not that much relative to just about any other possible entertainment. A, a comparison that we were talking about iTunes at $2 an hour or $2 a half hour, right. no matter how you shake it, Netflix is cheaper. Also, we've had other portals come to market in HBO with HBO Now, and very much came over, I think, with the same price point that linear HBO is priced at, coming in at around $15. Yeah, it depends on your cable company, but it, usually it's around that point. So it's still a good bit, or Netflix still remains well below what HBO is charging, even though the services are quite comparable by a number of measures. Now, granted, it is also more expensive than what Amazon Prime charges at a monthly basis and what Hulu, Hulu with ads, costs. Ad-free Hulu is actually a little bit more than Netflix. It's all getting rather complicated there. And so the, the other part of this is, you know, from the, the economic side of it, the folks that are, are looking at Netflix, uh, Netflix profits are, are much, much lower than HBO's. And so part of that is the fact that its, it's subscription point is so low, and Netflix is spending much, much more on the its programming. The number is $6 billion for 2016. Billion. Or like two episodes of Game of Thrones. Right. So again, you know, why does this matter? Yes, it's it's more money out of the pocketbook. And I think, yes, it will lead perhaps those who've been just sort of constantly paying their Netflix subscription without giving it a second thought to perhaps think about it for a second. But in a, a, what what's going on here? And this is, this is kind of classic. A new company came into a market. They offered a service really at below what they could afford to offer it in order to get a wide audience to try it. A wide audience has tried it. Many people really like and appreciate it. And, and now they're kind of hooked. And so, you know, what do they do for their shareholders? They, they raise their price so that they can continue to 
um, so that they can reward those shareholders with, you know, potentially dividends at some point, but to continue to expand the business internationally, which I think is really what the, the long game at, at Netflix is. Oh, at they're, they're definitely going big on international. I, and we talked about this was our first episode where we talked about Netflix going international, wasn't it? Yeah. And so I think, you know, like, at the end of the day, it's a matter of, of continuing to take a look at what's in that Netflix library and, and whether it offers value to the individual consumer. And I think the consumer market will, will respond accordingly. All right. Now, we're going to do something that we haven't done yet, and we're both very excited to do. We're going to open our listener mailbag. Who knew we even had one? I know, right? So this question comes from one of our listeners, Annika. Why are adaptations usually so bad? That ties in nicely with uh, or the last podcast that we did. And I, you know, I don't think there's an easy science to that. Um, I think you know, the, the researcher in me is, is even curious as to whether or not there's, there, you know, how would we even confirm that question, that that, that question is true? I know we could research whether or not adaptations are usually bad or, you know, is that based on what critics think? Is, is that it, based on audiences? Is turnout? it what based on fans of the book think versus not people who didn't know it going in? But I think that, that what you just noted, Alex, is, is really one of the big challenges for adaptations. So on the one hand, as we talked about last time, that as a business strategy, doing an adaptation is, is valuable because you have an audience that already knows it, who's more likely to turn up than an unknown product. On the other hand, that audience knows and loves a particular version of that, that story or that title. And so as a result, it's, it's pretty easy to disappoint them in a way that that's, if you have a new title and an unknown property, I think in many ways it's, it's more difficult to disappoint. Yeah, I mean, we can even put this in the context of Game of Thrones, which is probably one of the biggest adaptations on the market right now. Sure. Game of Thrones, the show picked and chose very carefully what they took from the books, including, you know, they've cut major storylines, major characters, and sometimes when they made a change, the fans were all riled up and were like, dang it, you're changing our story. Adaptations are all about making it work for the medium they're in. Right, and so I think that that's the other question to, to follow up on, which is what is the measure of a good adaptation? And you potentially have two somewhat contradictory ways of evaluating that. For some, it's staying true to the original and, and staying as much on point as possible. And I know I've gotten very mad at some Harry Potter movies from breaking too much from the original. Whereas others see value in maximizing the format of the adaptation. Um, so something that starts out in a book um, and, and can't be visual, perhaps, in the same way that, that it can be if it becomes a film. Or certain scenes that might work in a book setting might need to be tweaked in order to be done on a screen because of the, just the different story needs. Right. So I think it, it, those are all, you know, there are entire field scholars devoted to the study of adaptation. I'm not one of them. Um, but I think there, it's clear that there are a lot of thorny questions there that often lead adaptations to be unrewarding to those who uh, are, are really committed to the original text. And that, for me, leads me to what am I watching this week? Well, Amanda, what are you watching? I have been working my way through Man in the High Castle, which is an adaptation, uh, an Amazon series uh, that is adapted from a novel. The Philip K. Dick book, right? Correct. Um, adapted by largely by Frank Spotnitz. And I had the opportunity last Sunday to hear him talking about uh, making the show, which was really interesting. 
um, because I had an opportunity. I was in a room of academics and could ask the academic question, uh, which was, is there really a place that is Amazon Studios? And to ask a little <laughs> bit about the back end, um, because one of the things, in addition to the show being, the show is really fascinating. And honestly, it, it's haunting me in a way that not a lot of TV has lately. I, I still need to watch this show. It's definitely on my summer catch-up list. It, it's worth it, um, but in Amazon, like Netflix, you know, continues to fascinate me in, in terms of the economics of what they're doing. And so one of the things that, that's Botnet's noticed is that there really isn't a back end to these programs, uh, the things that are produced originally for Amazon or for Netflix, because they are, unlike that deficit financing model we talked about earlier, they are seeking to license and own the content in perpetuity, um, and certainly in the case of Netflix and increasingly in Amazon, to keep it in-house and distribute it on its own uh, throughout the world. Right, like we're not going to see, well, we have seen DVDs for something like Orange is New Black of How and House of Cards, but we're not going to see a lot of big DVD sets, or you're not going to see them air on cable. Or yeah. something along those lines. It, is what it's we mean by back it's those sort of sales that are, are really crucial. In when when people have the expectation that there's so much money to be made in an industry like television, the oodles and oodles of money that historically have been made in television haven't been made on the first airing for whatever network commissioned them. That that money has been made based on selling that product again and again and again in every country around the world repeatedly. Uh, and so that market doesn't exist for this content. And so one of the things I, I'm really curious about and just starting to look into is, is what are the implications for creatives? Uh, there's been a ton of attention to, oh, the creativity, you know, and how Netflix and Amazon, they don't give you notes and they let you do whatever you want. And, and, and to be truthful, I mean, Spotnitz was very much on that point and sort of saying, you know, I don't care if I don't make as much money because I'm getting to tell the story that I want to tell. And that's fine. And he may be in a position to make that choice. But I think, you know, as we begin to understand the implications of these new ways of distributing television, we also have to wrestle with whether or not um, creatives do so at a significant personal cost. And you know, what does it mean that in order to create really creative television, perhaps, and that's a, that's a, I'm not saying that all Amazon and Netflix content is really creative, uh, but if we're going to run with that hypothesis, that that you have to do so at a financial cost. What are you watching this week, Alex? Well, it, it to say it's been a busy couple weeks for me it is an understatement. But something that's helped me get through it is season two of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Uh, I'm a few episodes in right now, and that show is just so bubbly and so fun and so sweet, and I enjoy watching it. So that's another interesting case, given the discussions we were having this week. So that was a show that was originally created with the assumption that it was going to air on NBC. And NBC decided to, to pass, and so Netflix took it at that point. And yeah, so the NBC even season, produced a full 13-episode first season. Right. And so the second season was produced specifically for Netflix. And I wonder, are you, is there anything that suggests really a difference? I haven't really noticed anything that that's different. I mean, they're, they're using the same language. They're about at the same level in terms of something that you expect to see, like, sex or violence, like, there really isn't much of that. Like, it really is kind of the same, a very similar, if not the same, tonal show mm -hmm. that it was on N when it was produced for NBC. And, you know, Bob Greenblatt, when he was asked about the deal, said, you know, we just, we saw a better future for it at Netflix, and, you know, I kind of 
looking at it, NBC would not have been able to launch this show very well at that point. And so I'm kind of, I'm really glad that they were actually able to put this deal together and put this show in my life because Ellie Kemper is just so joyful. Like, um... (laughs) It might be the exact antidote to Man in the High Castle because it is... (laughs) I, I, while I strongly recommend it, 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 it is truly the opposite of joyful. Uh, in many I, ways. I think we've got opposites in our in our what we're watching. Well, totally, that's but. going back to the, the the point about adaptation. What, what Spotnitz was explaining is that it, it was a difficult book to adapt because it's not a plot heavy book. Um, it, it's it's a plot or it's a book that really wrestles with a certain condition, and it's this condition of. Know, how people maintain their humanity while they are surrounded by inhumanity. And so I haven't read the novel yet either, and but I can completely see how what the show does is it's, it's definitely true to that theme, but then is, is inventing its own plot lines you know, to, to tell a story that, that could go on much farther than, than the novel ever did. Well, a novel is a self-contained entity. A TV show is open-ended largely by definition. Unless it's Game of Thrones. Wow. <laughs> and, then you, and then you've got a TV show that has now surpassed the books that are still being written. So Yeah, I, I mean, that George R. R. Martin, he'll, he's going to keep writing, and I, I think it's going to be interesting to see where the books and the TV shows diverge. Uh, I look forward to what will unquestionably be decades of fascinating television scholarship dealing with exactly these questions. So, it's not stuff I'll be writing, but I, I feel confident others will. Yeah, it's, it's going to be an exciting time. So thank you for listening to this episode of Media Business Matters. If you want to listen to more episodes of the show, go to amandalots.com and click on the Media Business Matters link. On that page, you'll find links to our iTunes and RSS feeds where you can subscribe. Amanda, where can our listeners follow you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, L-O-T-Z. And you can find me at Alex Intner, Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. And we're always looking for more listener questions, so add to our listener mailbag by emailing drtvlots at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter and asking us there. We're not hard to find and we're always listening. We absolutely are. Now, we're going to take about an extra week in between our next episode, but we'll be back and we'll be talking up fronts.